Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Amy Gershkoff-Bowles, the Global Head of Digital and Emerging Technology Strategy at Levi Strauss & Company. That's just got to be an amazing thing to do. Anyway, Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And Michael, thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted to be here. It is completely my pleasure. Look, before we get into the main part of this conversation, can we give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? I want to know how we got to here. So uh, as you mentioned, I head up uh, global digital and emerging technology strategy at Levi Strauss and Company, which means I'm responsible for our digital and emerging tech as it relates to our business, our consumers, and our employees. And prior to this, I spent many years working in high growth venture capital and private equity backed companies um, where I've had both technical and operational roles. I've been a founder, a CEO, a COO, a general manager, a chief data officer. So I've uh, had kind of both that technical and operational experience. Um, I've also been an, an investor and a board advisor. So I've spent a lot of time in that kind of startup ecosystem, as well as I've also had executive roles at large public companies as well. And I currently serve as a public company board director. And in addition, I've also spent time in academia. Uh, I ha have a PhD from Princeton. I spent time teaching uh, math at Princeton. I, I also uh, taught data science at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Wow. So I've had that academic experience as well. Um, and then I've also had some civic experience because I um, have the immense privilege of running media planning and analytics for the Obama for America re-election campaign for President Obama. So um, I've gotten uh, the privilege of working in large public companies, the venture-backed and private equity-backed startup world, academia, and civic organizations. And so I feel like it's given me a real, very rich view of the landscape overall. So I'm grateful for that. I really want to understand this. And again, if you and I were sitting down having dinner, the first thing I would have to ask you is what is it like and what's the difference really between running the media planning for a, for a public figure, right, versus the media stuff that you do for a corporation? And the reason why I ask is because the corporate stuff is like constant. It never ends. There's a constant story being told if you're doing the right thing. But for an election and for an individual, it's so targeted and it's so intense. Like, how do you balance those two things with each other, right? Just the, the pure intensity of this is ending in November versus we're just going to keep doing this until 2037 kind of thing. <laughs> uh, it's a great question. And actually, one of the things that I found, you look at sort of my corporate experience and, and my civic experience, there's actually a lot of similarities between uh, the the communication that you need to do in, in both of those situations. So President Obama was seeking to reach voters to either, um, you know, try to persuade them to vote for him instead of Mitt Romney uh, in his reelection campaign, or to uh, make sure that they turned out to vote if he felt like they were reliable Obama supporters, um, or to, to ask them for donations if they were such reliable supporters and he also thought they were financially able to provide uh, some resources. Right. So, you know, outreach for persuasion and raising money. In all of those cases, you actually want the outreach to be very targeted. Uh, to feel very personalized. Each voter that we would reach out to, we wanted them to feel that the message was crafted just for them, that the outreach felt really personalized to the political issues they care about, 
the, the state or locality that they live in, what's locally relevant um, in, in terms of the landscape. And we really spent a lot of time and energy creating infrastructure to enable really personalized one-to-one communications at scale for the campaign. And it was in a way that actually hadn't been done before, even in corporate America. So following my uh, experience on the Obama campaign, I went to WPP, which at the time, I I think it still might be the largest advertising conglomerate on the planet and, you know, handle communication and marketing for some of the largest companies on earth. And all of these, uh, you know, kind of fortune 5,000 companies that are WPP clients are, are really trying to also do the same thing, right? Which is to have personalized outreach and communication about their brands, about a new product, about a service. And they want that communication to feel very targeted and personalized and to really feel that each consumer is being um, carefully outreach to in a way that's that's really most relevant for them. But here's where it gets really interesting, right? Because this idea of personalization, we couldn't even have thought about. I mean, we can go back to 2012 or 2008. It doesn't matter. Let's just go back to 2000. We couldn't even have thought about personalization because our ability to deal with just the amount of data, the plethora of data that we're getting is different than it is today and definitely different than it is then. But here's the key difference, I think. I think, again, I don't know. When you're selling a product, right, sometimes I forget. I've lived out of the States for a long time, but sometimes I forget, like, how different Massachusetts is from Texas. It feels like the same thing. And I'm thinking about this because, you know, I flew yesterday from Bangkok to Ho Chi Minh. It's not even an hour and a half away, and it's almost like a different world. Personalization, right, for a candidate, at the end of the day, it's just, I want your vote, right? And sure, at the end of the day, it's like, I want you to buy my product, but, like, I may be using the genes. Let's just use genes as an example. There's a proxy, right? I may use for work or I may use for fashion, right? Like, I wore jeans out last night to dinner, but some people may work, wear them to a factory. Like, how do you personalize that for a product, not just for a country? I know it's really complicated, but not just for a country, but for different countries. Like, it's a global company as well. How do you manage all that stuff, too? Yeah, you're absolutely right that it's a it's a complex set of challenges. But yeah. really, you know, at, at Levi Strauss uh, and company, what we're doing is to try to create the most personalized, relevant experience for each customer. And that has a number of different facets. So for example, making sure that each customer can find a pair of jeans or a top that's the right size and style that's relevant for them. And that's going to be different for each person. Um, you know, you and I might both be wearing a pair of Levi's jeans today, but they're probably different sizes <laughs> and styles, I would venture to guess. Sure. That's true of folks all over the world, right? There's difference in styles in different markets. Yep. There's different styles for different body types. Um, and uh, what we are trying to do is make sure that everyone can connect with uh, the, the most relevant, um, not just products, but experience, you know, Levi's is this really storied historic brand. Yeah. Uh, we've been around 170 years. Um, this year we're celebrating the 150th anniversary of the 501 gene. It's been around wow. literally for 150 years. And part of what has continued the relevance of the 501 is to ensure that each person can connect with the right pair of 501 jeans. And we've done a lot, uh, in, especially in the last few years, as a company, as part of our, our digital transformation of ensuring that customers can connect with the 
relevant styles for them, whether it's online or in one of our stores, whether that be one through one of our wholesale partners or through one of our retail stores. Oh my God, you're never going to be able to go home from this dinner you and I are having because I get so many <laughs> things to ask you. Is this a new thing at Levi's? Like, did, did big companies just wake up one day and say, uh-oh, we have to be digitally transformed? Do you know what I mean? Or is it the cause of just like young employees who love the brand or whatever it is come in and say, you know, if we just reorganized our data stuff, like somebody graduates from Berkeley, gets a job in the data science team at Levi Strauss and then says, shouldn't we change the way we do? Like, what is the driver of this? It's a really good question. And I think really the driver is, is always the customer. So customers today, and especially if you look at Gen Z customers, yep. they're the way they experience the world is very different than how Gen Xers like myself grew up experiencing the world. For someone who's in Gen Z, the line between the physical world and the digital world has been totally erased. They have friends that they've met online that they're now friends with in real life. They have friends from real life that they now interact with online. They might see an amazing new style or product right. online and then go into a retail store to buy it. Or they might be inspired by an experience they had online that help them connect with you know new new styles and then be able to buy that also online there's no line anymore for them between the physical and the digital world and so a, a key reason that companies uh, it became an imperative for companies to think about digital transformation is because that's where the consumer is and we always have to start consumer first as a best practice and follow the way that they're leading their lives and design really interactive experiences for them as a customer that matches what will not not just matches their expectations but will inspire and delight them and create a long-lasting relationship with the brand i want to get back to gen z in a second because this merging of the physical world in the digital world is something that's so interesting to me do you think that big companies in, in general, I mean, I, I like to split things into two categories, those that get it, right, and those that don't get it. And do you feel like when you joined that the company already understood it and they were like, we need to hire someone like Amy to come in and do this thing because the whole world is changing and we know it's changing. We have to get on this boat, otherwise we're going to miss it. Do you know what I mean? At Levi Strauss, uh, the imperative of digital transformation, uh, you know, it started several years before I joined. And Levi's has been, I think, really amazing at continuing to reinvent itself over the last many decades. And that's part of what has enabled uh, the company to have such a long-standing history is that continued drive for innovation. And in fact, our, our CEO, Chip Berg, likes to say that, you know, uh, Levi's was the original Silicon Valley startup. I mean, it was. Uh, 501 was a partnership between our, our founder, Mr. Strauss, and a tailor uh, named uh, uh, Mr. Davis. And they patented the 501 gene, right? So, and then obviously the company has evolved significantly since then. But the idea is that continual reinvention, that continual transformation, following the customer and what they're wanting from an experience and then continuing to keep the brand relevant under those. Awesome. What is it about the brand that doesn't lose relevance? That's really interesting for me. And the other thing is what is the internal DNA there that causes this drive for innovation? I mean, yeah, if you go back and look at the founding story of the company, these were entrepreneurs and like real ones. Cause back then when this company was founded, right, there was no Silicon Valley. There was no 
venture capitalism. They just went out and like borrowed money from like their friends, their grandparents, or whatever. If if that, and then started this. How does that DNA persist all the way through a hundred and something years later to today? So as we look at sort of Levi's history. I think one of the things that the company has done really well is this process of continual innovation. And I think that um, if you look sort of historically at other companies, there are not many companies around the world that can say that they've been around for 107 years. But if you look at other companies with a similarly long history, uh, they, they all have similar DNA in terms of uh, process of continuous innovation yeah. in terms of always being customer centric and putting the customer first and putting the customer at the center of decisioning. Those two factors um, together are really important driver of the longevity of, of a brand and to maintaining a brand's relevance in an era where, you know, every era there's so much change. And so in order to maintain that relevance, you always have to be following the customer behavior. What's your view on the possibility and the likelihood of, let's say, taking taking somebody who's in a role like this at a different company that didn't have this history of innovation and just getting dropped in and just saying, okay, look, you have a blank slate. We need to do digital transformation. Do you even think it's possible? I'll tell you the reason why I'm asking. I look back at all the products that I used when I was a kid right, and the, the companies that I really admired. We can talk about technology companies. We don't have to talk who they are. Some of them are gone. I mean, I remember when my roommate walked into my room with a compact computer, literally carrying it. I had one of those as well. I'm compact. sure you did. And it was yes. so amazing. He's carrying I'm like, that's a computer, because the guy upstairs had an IBM AT or something, which I also thought was amazing. But neither one of those companies really has the same relevance. Like before, when someone said, oh, that dude works at compact, I was like, oh my God, Rod Canyon, this is amazing. And I'm not just saying this, like one of the reasons why I want to do this is because I'm a big brand believer, but it's like I, I wore Levi's when I was 12 and I still wear them today. And my perception of the company is the same or better than it was today. I mean, than it was 25 or 35 years ago, right? So what do you do for a company that doesn't have that DNA to kind of change it? Is it even possible, do you think? I, I think it's, it's definitely possible. It's of course easier if the company has a culture of innovation, but if not, I think really innovation, you know, successful innovation is about really focusing on a few key fundamental pillars. So first and foremost is talent strategy. It's incredibly important to think about talent first and foremost. Uh, I always like to say no one ever did anything interesting at work all by themselves. It always <laughs> takes a team of people to accomplish anything. No one succeeds so, alone. Uh, no one succeeds alone. No one. Um, as, as the other expression goes, there's no I in team. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and so uh, for that reason, it's really important to think about recruiting Retaining and growing your talents at Levi's, for example, we've invested a lot in upskilling our uh, our employees and in continuing to ensure that they have the next generation of digitally relevant skills. But it's it's important just generally to really spend and invest um, both time and resources in hiring and retaining great talent. The second thing that becomes really important is to ensure that you're sort of simultaneously creating processes that are agile and enable a test and learn environment while also building for scale. And this is a, this is a real challenge for most companies, many companies that had a, a wonderful history, but don't exist anymore right. were companies that did 
one or the other of those well, but not both. In other words, they were great speed and agility um, and testing and learning, but not so great at building long lasting uh, scale in their products. Similarly, there are other companies that are so good at building for scale that it becomes too challenging and cumbersome to innovate because there's no mechanism for an agile test and learn process. And so the companies that have had the most success with innovation have figured out how to bring in uh, and keep the best talent. And then they've also figured out how to do that simultaneous test and learn and, and build for scale. And th that's what leads to sort of a long lasting, you know, brand and company that can withstand many changes to uh, external factors, consumer behavior, and, and withstand the test of time. When I was at Morgan Stanley in Tokyo, periodically, they would send guys and gals out from New York tech guys, mostly because that's where the talent was. And we were building out tons of new technology. I want to talk about that in a second as well. And I asked one of these guys once, it was, this was a gentleman and I asked him, he was so good at his job, like so good at it. And I said to him, why don't you just go out and start your own company? Like the, the rewards to you are so much higher. And he didn't even have to think about it. He just looked at me and he said, big banks have big problems and real technologists want to solve big problems. And I, it's changed the way I thought about this. How do you now hire people because this talent thing is so important i was having this conversation with somebody last night how do you get the right talent when there's this siren call of you know you could work at this super hot startup like you could go work at i don't want to say magically because it's not that hot anymore but you know what i mean like you could go work at this super hot startup how do you convince people that this is actually a better opportunity do you know what i mean because that fight for talent's hard and it's now global right you have companies like turing saying you don't need to hire an engineer in silicon valley you can hire them in Ho Chi Minh or in Hanoi, right? Or in Bangkok, we'll find them for you or in India. How do you balance all that stuff too? So one of the things that I think has been really exciting in the last few years is we've seen the market for talent open up to be truly global. Like yeah. you described for many companies, um, regardless of where in the world they're based, they can hire talent that is, is based elsewhere, whether it's in other cities or other countries. And one of the things that I think is so exciting about that is it enables an access to a diversity of talents that most companies never had before. I've had a number right. of global roles at large public companies where I've had team members in 12, 13, 14 different countries. And what was amazing about that, one, it, well, actually three. One is I got to know a lot of amazing people all over the world. So now wherever I travel, I have friends that I can call and who can uh, show me uh, the best local restaurants. And that's been amazing. Right. But the, the two reasons why that was fantastic is number one, for most companies, their customers are global. Yeah. And so by having global talent, you have an understanding of the customer experience on a market by market basis that you absolutely cannot get with just even the best research is not a substitute for yeah. having people who live in that market, yep. who, who shop in that market, who spend their, live their lives in that market, who can tell you nuances about the customer experience that you absolutely can't get anywhere else. Yeah. The second reason that having global talent is an amazing asset is because very smart people all over the world think about hard technical problems or 
difficult business challenges differently. Their approach is different. Their mindset is different. And so um, in some of my prior roles, for example, uh, when I was at eBay, I had uh, team members from a number of different countries who would collaborate on problems. And while that caused some time zone and other sorts of challenges, it led to a much better technical solution in every case because we were bringing together different approaches, different mindsets. And the same was true at WPP and other companies that have a global footprint. And that that really was game-changing to be able to, to work with brilliant people that were all over the world. It gave us a different view on on the challenges we were facing. So I've said this to you at the beginning of this recording, but I've lived in Asia for the last 32 years, right? And I've traveled all over the region, meeting new people and different people. And for me, like diversity is just there constantly. I don't need to be convinced kind of thing. And I'm not saying that in a good way or a bad way per se. But, you know, when I grew up, I went to a school that looked a lot like me all the time. Let's just say that, yeah? And how do you... Convince again is the wrong word, but like, how do you tell people or educate people about the fact that, you know, if we have these people from Myanmar on the team, they're going to give us some insights into stuff because they've never experienced it. You know what I mean? You have, and some people haven't. How do you, what's the epiphany moment for them where they say, oh yeah, actually having that person from Rwanda here is awesome. I mean, my whole experience in my almost 20 year career is anytime I've had diverse uh, global team with perspectives from all over the world, it's just radically enhanced the ability of the team to solve challenges. It's been enriching to creating better customer experiences. And it's been fun uh, for (laughs) for the employees as well to get to connect with people all over the world. Um, And so to me, the opportunity to create uh, teams that are uh, diverse and global, it's the only option uh, to really solving interesting sets of challenges. I could not agree with you more. Can we get back to the metaverse for a second? What is the real difference that is manifested through this digital world to physical world thing? And do you want to spend any time talking about companies like Levi Strauss, like um, PwC, like Accenture, actually buying space in the sandbox, right? So in the metaverse, this thing run by Animoca Brands. Like, what's is there a strategy there as well? In other words, look, when we were kids, we used to say, why can't we, instead of going into a store and trying this on, why can't we just, like, stand in front of a camera, kind of spin around, and it knows my size exactly? Like, why? And then I just get it. It's been a pipe dream for a long time. And I know people are doing this, right? But how does that work? Yeah, the metaverse is super interesting because it's one of many spaces in emerging technology where there's obviously a lot of hype and a lot of interest um, by both technologists and consumers and a ton of opportunity for brands. But there are also lots of other spaces that provide a lot of opportunity for brands and companies in the industrial 4.0 space, for example. Um, it's not talked about in consumer press as much as the metaverse, um, but there's no less opportunity there in terms of the ability to impact supply chain operations, uh, go to market um, and enhance the consumer experience through those channels as well. So because there's so much opportunity in emerging technology, and by the way, web 3.0 and industrial are just two of many whole industry of opportunity. This is why when I arrived at uh, Levi Strauss and company, uh, the first thing that that my team did 
was to create a framework for evaluating emerging technology and innovation opportunities. And we spent time thinking first, not about innovation projects we should tackle as a company, but first establishing what is the criteria by which we should determine which projects to tackle as a company, because there's so much opportunity today and every day there are new opportunities being created because the industry is moving so quickly. So what we did was to build this emerging technology framework. And what it allows us to do is take a very disciplined approach to innovation. And so at Levi Strauss and Company, what we do is for any emerging technology or innovation opportunity, we evaluate that opportunity against a series of criteria. And the criteria include resonance with our brand and our corporate values. Levi's is a very values-driven company. And so that resonance is important to us. We assess the resonance of uh, the innovation opportunity with our overall corporate strategy um, and, and having that synergy between how we're thinking about innovating and what our strategic pillars are as an organization, we found to be incredibly important. Uh, we obviously undertake a very rich and deep financial analysis to ensure that any innovation opportunity we would consider ultimately will have significant enterprise value for um, us as a business um, and, our, and our shareholders, as well as our customers. And finally, and most importantly, we look at the positive impact that any innovation would have on the customer experience and make sure that we're always starting with that customer-centric viewpoint. And so I established this framework working collaboratively with executives from across the organization to ensure that there was alignment around what the criteria would be that we would use to evaluate innovation opportunities. And then what this allows us to do is take this framework and apply it to decisioning in any area, be it the metaverse, industrial 4.0, or any of the other thousands of areas of opportunity in this very rich emerging technology environment. I think I'm gonna make the title of this episode a disciplined approach to innovation. And one of the reasons why I like this is because you do have to have a framework first before you can start making decisions about which technology you're gonna employ, how you're gonna employ it, where you're gonna employ it, and what you expect the output to be. You can't just wake up one day and say, and a lot of companies do do this, right? We have to be in the metaverse. What's the point? Like, why are we there? What are we trying to do? Are we just jumping on the hype of this? Because I call these people chasers. I say this all the time. Like, you see these guys and gals on LinkedIn or whatever change, like, their middle name to blockchain or to whatever the thing is of the day. They're never doing anything. They're just chasing something. Anyway, I love this idea about a disciplined approach to innovation. How does this drop down, though, to, like, regular everyday employees? And this is why I'm asking. You know, when I was a sales trader, we built this thing called Smart Sales Trader. We took all this time to amalgamate all this data and to enhance our ability to be customer-centric. As you said, we want to serve our customers better. How can we get information fast enough so that they can react to market changes instantaneously? And we know we don't have to look it up because our technology is already out there looking at what's happening in the market, going into an investor's portfolio, telling us what they have, and then making recommendations to us to be able to tell to them. It was amazing. And it changed our lives. What's changing the lives at like the day-to-day employees at Levi Strauss? And frankly, you're right. It can be in the supply. These are things that people don't talk about. It can be in the supply chain. It can be in the manufacturing process. It can be in just the ordering process. I mean, I work with companies out here. TMX is one of them that does digital twins for every warehouse that they build. And sometimes before they build them, so they can walk through 
right, using VR and augmented reality technology with the people that are trying to build this and say, ah, actually, this needs to be over there because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Do you know what I mean? So what changes for the employees? I think one of the things that is really exciting by Strauss and part of why the company has existed for 170 plus years is because there's so much innovation in the culture all the way from the most senior leadership to, you know, other just rank and file employees as well. That culture is sort of embedded in the company DNA. So what's really um, exciting about this kind of framework and the disciplined approach to innovation that we've taken is it's enabled the company to evaluate innovation opportunities in this emerging technology space and help harness the creative energy and innovative energy of employees all over the world that our framework shows are best to focus on. And so by leveraging this framework, like you're saying, like you had mentioned, you know, FOMO is not a strategy, no. right? We no. don't want to be in chasing um, an innovation idea that's not right for us as a brand or that's not right for our customers simply because it's showing up more frequently in technology news feeds. What we want to do is take an approach that's authentic to us as a company, that's authentic to us as a brand, and enables our employees all over the world uh, to think about ways to innovate in the areas that are most relevant for us and for our customers. I love it. And is this in different locations as well? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you have different frameworks for different places? I ask this because when I was in Singapore in September, I actually went shopping and bought a pair of jeans. And I just wonder, like, the salespeople, it must drift down to them or drip down to them as well that they, you know, when you walk into the store, they already know what I've bought previously, what my size is, all this stuff. And even that I don't even live in Singapore. Like, what type of data is drifted down or dripped down to the retail locations that they might not have had before to make the salespeople even better. Yeah, we at, at Levi Strauss, we've taken the approach of wanting to create the most memorable, uh, personalized and delightful shopping experience for each customer all over the globe in whatever way they choose to engage with us, whether that's shopping through at one of our retail stores, whether it's engaging with products in one of our wholesale partners or whether it's shopping with us online and to enable the ongoing discovery of new products or styles that they might be interested in to help them find the the styles that are going to look the best and and fit the best and and best resonate with them, as well as all the way through to having a really uh, successful and smooth purchase experience. Uh, And even post-purchase, you know, we have millions of people across the globe who are members of our loyalty program and who engaged with us in that way as well. And that's enabled us to drive even better personalized experiences uh, through understanding through our loyalty program, the different consumer preferences. And we strive to create that experience for customers all over the globe um, and for each customer to feel like the experience, it wasn't just designed for their market. It was designed for them personally in a way that feels authentic and enables them to continue to connect with our brand. Are there certain things that brands can do right, that are available for, let's say, two brands to to do, even if it works, right, even if it works for, like, just getting people to discover you or to buy more stuff, but it just doesn't fit the brand image. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Where, let's say, brand A can do this really amazing thing, and brand B looks at it and says, we should, but we can't because it doesn't fit us. Do you find those conundrums as well? From a technology perspective, yeah? So this is why we spent um, quite a bit of 
time and energy, really thinking through the framework to enable us to make sure that as we were evaluating uh, various technology opportunities, we were doing it in a framework and in, in a methodology that was gonna ensure that any innovation opportunities that we decided to pursue were going to resonate with us as a brand and with uh, in particular as well, uh, our company values being that we're such a values driven company. So this is where I, I am a big believer in encouraging companies to think about developing a framework like this that is authentic to who they are, and then just being very disciplined in the application of that framework, sort of irrespective of what new technology might receive the most hype right. um, or might be discussed the most in the news, uh, but thinking really about what's actually best for your company, for your brand, and for your consumers. And that's really the, the framework um, that we've developed at Levi Strauss. You know, sometimes when I talk to senior corporate executives, I wonder like how they find enough time to do all the things that they're doing, right? You teach, <laughs> you invest, you also have a day job. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder, like, are you even old enough to have had all the experience that you have? Um, because it doesn't seem like there's been enough time. Maybe there are 36 hours in your day. There aren't in mine. As a, um, But it's fun, right? And this, I don't even want to go down this rabbit hole, but it's fun, right? That's why you do it. I do a ton of things, too. And it's like every time I deal with somebody new, it's so much fun and I learn so much. Do you engage as a company with startups strategically to learn about these new technologies? Is that part of the framework that you've built? And also, do you maintain a, I mean, you must personally, but as a corporate policy, do you maintain relationships with venture capitalists as well? And a lot of corporates are now starting CVCs, right? Corporate venture capital companies so that they can look at them and say, wait, we need to invest in this. How do all three of those things work together? Um, it's a great question. And when I joined Levi Strauss and Company, one of the things that I did was I formed a partnership with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank, as you uh, and your listeners probably know, um, is one of the largest uh, financial institutions in the world. Uh, they are the bank for um, a, a huge majority. I can't remember the exact number, but a huge majority of startups all over the globe. And they also are the bank for a majority of uh, venture capital firms all right. over the globe. So they actually have an incredible network of an ecosystem and understanding of the ecosystem uh, as it relates to technology startups in particular. And so through our partnership with them, uh, we hosted a startup pitch day uh, last year, last fall, um, where we um, worked with Silicon Valley Bank to vet more than 4,000 companies. And we invited 10 startups to come to pitch us. And in, in that pitch process, um, those were 10 companies that we, we thought have some very promising um, technologies that we wanted to uh, learn more about and engage in a dialogue with them. In addition, we've continued our partnership with Silicon Valley Bank, and they've continued to keep us apprised of exciting uh, startups in the ecosystem and other companies um, and trends that they're seeing in the marketplace. And what this has enabled us to do is stay close to the startup ecosystem, to uh, be aware of new cutting edge companies and developments. Um, and uh, we're planning to continue to host startup pitch days with them on a kind of regularized basis going forward um, and to continue to um, use that partnership to stay very close to what's, what's up and coming in the space. Uh, and, and maintaining that 
uh, connective tissue with the startup community is incredibly important because industry is changing and evolving so quickly. There are new companies all over the world uh, that are being created every day in this space. And so uh, we're we're really excited and delighted uh, to have SVB as a partner to help us connect uh, with the latest and greatest, most exciting new technology <laughs> as, they're, as they're being forged. So sometimes in your position, right, and frankly in mine as well, we get exposed to new technologies before the rest of the world does. I mean, you mentioned earlier that like the the consumer press doesn't mention anything that's happening in the sort of digital twin space and all this other stuff that happens in the B2B space, right, which is a shame because that's where a lot of the innovation is actually happening. The B2C stuff Frankly, it's interesting, but the real change, the dramatic change takes place for me, I think, at the business level, because then that filters down. Anyway, um, what is the impact now that GPT-3 and artificial intelligence and open AI, all this stuff that Altman and the team there are doing is now filtering out to the rest of the world? What is the impact of that stuff? Really, when you think about in the context of the framework that you've built and the business that you're in, where does this stuff fit into what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so AI and data are just absolutely critical to any, almost any company thinking about digital transformation. And they're a core part of how Levi Strauss and company is thinking about uh, our digital transformation as well. But that said, of course, data and AI is an enormous people. Um, And so that's why we created this framework to enable us to be able to evaluate emerging technologies, even just within the field of AI, each evaluating each individual opportunity, thinking about the resonance uh, with our brand and corporate values, our overall corporate strategy, looking at the financials of what's the real impact that this could have for us as a business. um, And most importantly, what's the positive impact on the consumer experience? And I think the, the field of AI is very exciting. And obviously I've spent significant aspects of my career leveraging AI as ways to drive uh, value and growth for a number of companies that I've worked at and advised. Um, but I also believe in the need for a very disciplined innovation approach, given how many opportunities there are within the AI space. When you look back, right? I mean, look, you mentioned the fact you have a PhD from Princeton, right? When you look back, like from the moment you graduated, even as an undergraduate, right? By the way, Cornell, what an amazing place. The gorgeous, unbelievable. I loved Ithaca. Anyway, when you look back at like what you thought, because you, you're studying all this stuff, maybe slightly idealistically and thinking, how can we use this technology to do this stuff? As kind of that idealism catches up to today's realism, do you look back and think, yeah, a lot of the stuff that I thought was going to happen is now happening? Do you know what I mean? And is that exciting for you? I actually uh, entered the field because of my father. has uh, been a longstanding technologist for uh, many decades now. And uh, he always encouraged me from a very young age to pursue uh, math and science and and really the, the sort of STEM, STEM fields, if you will, um, because his belief was that um, all decisions should be data-driven decisions. And that, uh, you know, if you have a solid foundation in understanding how data and technology can be used to make decisions, that this will serve you well in any role or uh, job that you might have in, it, in almost any industry, that, that that approach to technology being uh, additive and to data being necessary uh, for, for enabling business 
is, is useful in any industry. And so he always encouraged me to go into this field with the mindset that whatever uh, industry or ultimate profession I chose, I would be well served by a, a solid background in quantitative decision-making. And so, uh, and he said all this spoken like a true CIO, uh, which he was, I'm very grateful uh, that he encouraged me to go down this path um, because he was right. Um, I've worked now in a number of, as I mentioned, large public companies, small venture backed startups. I've worked in, you know, everything from politics to uh, the world of advertising to technology companies. And what I found is that uh, being able to have a disciplined, data-driven, quantitative approach to making decisions is critical, whether you're in a technical or operational role in any industry. Did you feel when you were a little girl, and I use that term on purpose, like when you were a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old, did you know or did you feel like your dad was an outlier? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you <laughs> feel like that was a conversation that was being had in other of your young girlfriends and even guy friends' houses? Like, all your decisions need to be data-driven. Quantitative decision-making is going to change. Do you, do you know what I mean? Or did you feel at some point like, wow, that was actually really transformational for me personally? And I want to bring this up because this is actually really important to me. Did you feel like that because I really want to understand like this outlier part of your dad, because it's super interesting, but also the fact that even in your generation, right, that being a woman in your position is not still normal. It should be. It's not, right? But do you feel like your dad was an outlier? And then do you feel like now that you're an adult and dealing with all this stuff, that you look around and just think so many talented women out there should be doing more of this? Yeah, I absolutely credit my father with changing, you know, my entire uh, you know, career trajectory in life through this enthusiasm for data and for quantitative decision-making. Right. I believe I was very lucky because I don't think uh, very many other young girls um, have the benefits of real champion uh, for, you know, to encouraging them to go into STEM fields. And I think if more uh, parents, caregivers, mentors, teachers encouraged women to enter STEM fields, we would start to see uh, more parity. We are actually starting to see that the data show it's moving. Um, that there are more women entering STEM fields today than there were um, when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm pleased to see the data are moving in the right direction, but there's always more work to do uh, to encourage all, all kids really um, yeah. to, to, enter, to enter STEM fields because that foundational grounding is very useful regardless of their career trajectory. I could not agree with you more. Do you want to talk about Chief a little bit and why that's so important? So yes, I'd love to talk about Chief. So I was one of the founding members of Chief in San Francisco. Uh, and Chief is, for those uh, listeners of your listeners who may not know, um, Chief is uh, an organization dedicated to getting more women into C-suite executive roles right. and boardroom roles and to keeping them there. And Chief has been an amazing and transformational uh, organization for, um, I think now, tens of thousands of women across the United States. The, the organization only started a few years ago. It has grown very rapidly. And now they've expanded. They've begun to expand internationally. Um, they opened a chapter in the UK, um, I believe, just last week. They're starting to be the beginnings of taking this organization and expanding their work globally, which will hopefully help um, other senior women leaders all over the world to achieving, you know, more of a presence in executive roles. 
boardroom. And I've personally found it incredibly valuable to be part of a network of women who are so um, encouraging and inspiring. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a very um, uh, helpful from a professional development standpoint. And I've also enjoyed the opportunity to now connect with other senior women leaders all over the country and hopefully shortly, not only in the UK, but all over the world. All over the world. The last thing I want to ask you before I let you go is as technology becomes more and more part of everybody's life, right? I feel like we're a little bit at a tipping point or an inflection point in a way, in the sense that artificial intelligence and the stuff that we discussed earlier is now making people afraid of their own ability to earn a living. And yet, in the same, at the same time, people are worried about recessions as well. So there's a lot of worry about like how technology is impacting people. And my feeling on this is that cycles, cyclically, right? Things just happen so much faster. I mean, recessions used to be five years long. I lived through the 70s. I remember the oil price shocks. I remember stagflation and just thinking, this feels like it's never gonna end. But I think on the flip side, technology also makes those cycles shorter, faster as well. And that humans seem to be really good about figuring out like what can tech do to make our lives better and yet still find a way to stay employed. Am I wrong here? Like what's the challenge here? So technology of course has been uh, kind of continually evolving since since humans have been on the planet, right? Um, yeah. you know, there was the um, you know, invention of the wheel, which was game changing. There was, you know, if you go to more recent uh, history, right, there were a lot of horse and buggy companies that yeah. were put out of business with the arrival of the automobile. Yep. Um, and now um, we're starting to see globally electric cars beginning to replace um, in, in many markets. And it's, you know, beginning to spread globally, replace, you know, gasoline powered vehicles. So technology transformation is nothing new. And I think technology transformation is nothing, is, is nothing new. That's been part of the human experience for a long time. Yep. I think the companies that will stand the test of time, like Levi Strauss and company has done with our 170 and we're even more excited about the next 170 years are the ones that have that culture of continuous innovation, of always thinking about how to, uh, you know, how the customer experience is changing or needs to change to continue to inspire and delight the customer and to create a memorable lasting relationship between the customer and the brand. That is the perfect way to end. Dr. Amy Gershkoff-Bowles, the Global Head of Digital and Emerging Technology Strategy at Levi Strauss & Company. Thank you so much for doing that today. Thank you for having me.